Welcome to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. My name is John Shaw and I'm the director of the Institute. Today we'll bring you a conversation I had in April 2021 with Angela Jackson, the Poet Laureate of Illinois, just a few months after her selection to that position. I enjoyed getting to know Ms. Jackson and listen to her perform some wonderful poems. So we dug this out of the archives to share with you. Please enjoy. And today we're very, very privileged to be joined by a a star of sorts, Professor Angela Jackson, who is among other things, the fifth poet laureate of Illinois, joins a really distinguished group of poet laureates. Um, Professor Jackson was born in Mississippi, moved to Chicago as a young girl, grew up in the Englewood neighborhood, and later earned degrees at Northwestern and the University of Chicago. She's been a lifelong teacher at Columbia College in Chicago, at Howard University in DC, um, and also Kennedy King Community College a number of years in Chicago. She is a prolific and award-winning writer who spans almost every genre from, from poetry to plays to, uh, to novels and, and a biography of, of her hero, Gwendolyn Brooks, who we will definitely talk about. Uh, in, 20 last, in 2020, last year, she was named the fifth uh, poet laureate in Illinois history, following in the footsteps of such people as Carl Sandburg and Gwendolyn Brooks. And we're especially delighted to be with her today because April is National Poetry Month. So what better way to celebrate it than with our state's Poet Laureate. So Professor Jackson, so good to see you. A pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, your, your, your growing up. I mean, you, you mentioned you're from Mississippi. You've described your move to Chicago as part of really the Great Migration, that sort of epic uh, episode in American history. You moved to the Englewood neighborhood of Chicago and we're with, uh, so you're part of both a Chicago community and a really distinctly Southern community. Tell us about those years. Oh gosh, I wasn't in Mississippi that long. I was born there, of course, and we stayed, and I, they, we stayed there till I was my my first year. And so when I was one, we moved to Chicago to that same house on the edge of Inglewood at 5527 South Wentworth. That block is a moment in time that and memory that stays in my mind. In fact, my brothers and sisters and I are, are writing a memory book about those those special years of settling in the city. Um, our block was a neighborhood. It was like a small town of people from the South mainly. Uh, there were a few, uh, there were still a few whites in the block who owned a bakery and on the corner was uh, a black pharmacist uh, with the mailbox on the corner, uh, a cleaners, a record store where you could hear the music coming out, flooding the street. In the early days, there was a streetcar line. I still remember that went down the middle of the street, uh, the avenue. The wonderful thing about our neighborhood was that we were surrounded by bakeries. There were tip top, silver cup, wonder bread, all and the smell of bread suffused the whole area. I think there were so many bakeries because Wanzer's milk, Wanzer's on milk is like Sterling on silver was the, was, the, was the slogan. And uh, that whole smell of bread lingered in the air. There was a freedom in our neighborhood. I think we were free as children because we felt so safe because we were looked over and watched by uh, so many people who cared for us. Let me read a poem about that. That'd be great. Okay. Summer and the City, Chicago then 
in memory of Robert Hayden and his memory. Summer nights, cool came down, blotting heat like a kiss for colored children. Heat surged as we danced, jagged up and down the street, played hide and seek. Last night, night before, 24 robbers at my door. I got up, let them in, hit them in the head with a rolling pin. Oh, here, among the leaves of church hedges, we smelled something slow and splendid in our sweat. Our fathers, we knew, were good jobs that required muscle. Our mothers in day work used elbow grease and unwritten receipts for smothered chicken and gravy caused white women to envy and delight. Outside, mothers waited for aid checks and the long gone man, large women unfolding chairs, ate chunks of Argyle starch. Lean days, sugar sandwiches, ketchup or mayonnaise, missing meat, a vague notion, love, manna. Twilight blessed the blocks, poured from a dark man's mouth like a spout of Joe Lewis milk our champion toast, heralding the greatest arrival, however long the getting there. Slow rocking grandmothers spit out words into small cans held in their hands. Their eyes trained on us from deep south porches we never left behind, never left us even after Exodus, mouths wide open, we drank the evening's pleasure. Men, women who loved us more than what we could have known. We were their quick flashing hope treasures, the memory of us, their milk, their honey. Wow, very, very evocative of uh, a place and a time. Um, well, let's talk, let's move up a little bit where you uh, made a, you know, when you went to university, you made a huge shift. You moved uh, probably not that far mileage wise, but you went from, from this neighborhood that you've just described to Northwestern University. And then you went, uh, you attended Northwestern as a pre-med student. Tell us about the Northwestern years. Going to Northwestern was like going to the moon. It felt that far away and that alien. <laughs> Actually, it was, Evanston was the end of the airline. So, you know, it, Chicago and then Evanston. So it wasn't that far. And um, the drive was like a half an hour to 45 minutes when my father drove us up there. I did go to Northwestern as pre-med, but actually, when I was a little girl at 10 or 11, I wanted to be a writer first, but, uh, oh, things, reading other things got in the way, and I decided that because I tested so high in natural sciences, and I like to take care of people, and the idea of healing people, uh, appealed to me and my personality. Then I decided I wanted to be a writer, a, a doctor. So I entered in pre-med, but I had no gift for chemistry or calculus. And all I wanted to do anyway was write in my blue gray notebook poems. And I had been writing poems anyway, all through high school. So I gradually shifted over and let go of the dream of being a doctor and followed my instincts to be a writer. And I got validation for wanting to be a writer. Um, at the, the, my freshman year, the great poet and novelist, 
Margaret Walker came to Northwestern and she was my African-American literature teacher. And, uh, but even more significantly, I had seen uh, a film in high school of Gwendolyn Brooks. And I, re I still remember first seeing her and thinking, she's a Negro like me. She lives in Chicago like me. So I remember that made an impression upon me. And then finally, but most singularly, um, Hoyt Fuller, who was the editor of Negro Digest, was a visiting professor at Northwestern in my sophomore year. And my friend, uh, Roella Davis, encouraged me to show him my poems. So I did, and he kept the notebook for a couple of weeks. And when he returned them to me, he said diplomatically, you have a way with words. So he invited me to Obasi, the organization of Black American culture, where I might be judged by my peers, he said. And I remember thinking, Don L. Lee and Carolyn Rogers, they're not my peers. They're 10 years older than me. <laughs> That's how it seemed when you're that young. Right. So I went to Obasi the third Wednesday of October in 1969, and I felt like I was at home. And uh, the mission of Obasi was the creation of a literature that was to, for, and from African-American people, Black people. And it was determined that Obasi would create uh, the reality of Black people and not stereotypes. We would portray us as we were, as Langston Hughes had said, uh, in the Negro Artists and the Racial Mountain in the Harlem Renaissance would portray us in our beauty, beauty and our ugliness in all our humanity. And that is what the, the members of Obasi determined that we would do, portray Black people as we were. And that it was revolutionary to still see us as humans because the culture was so uh, pressured, pressuring to see us not as humans, to see us in the legacy of slavery as less than. So I decided to devote my life to portraying us as we are. Well, let's talk about your teaching career, because I know you've, um, you know, it, we, we, I mentioned the schools that you, you did, the colleges, but also you, as I understand it, early in your career, you were very active in kind of a uh, poetry in schools program across the, the state of Illinois, uh, very, uh, very focused on trying to get poetry into the hands and minds of young people. Talk about just how, how I want to talk about writing in a second, but how teaching has been such an integral part of your life. One of the Obasi members, I don't know how he first became involved in the Illinois Arts Council was Robert uh, Walter Bradford, who was a youth organizer and poet and a direct protege of Gwendolyn Brooks. He uh, recommended me to, uh, the, for the Poets in the Schools uh, program. And, uh, and that became my first job going from uh, school to school, classroom to classroom. In those days, I would take a school by storm. I would go from classroom to classroom, like on roller skates almost. I was so fast. And I would memorize the name of every child in each classroom and share poems with them and get them excited about poetry. And, and we would write group poems together. 
and each child would put something into the poem. And after we wrote a group poem, then each child would write an individual poem. And then we would try to guess who wrote what poem. And so we just had a great time in every classroom in the school. Well, I've heard you say that your, your students serve kind of a dual purpose of keeping you both grounded and reaching at the same time. Talk about that. My students? Yeah. <laughs> Do they stimulate your poetry or, um, or just even maybe talk a little bit more broadly about teaching poetry to students? I mean, is it, is it something that comes to them instinctively um, are they frightened of it? Do they feel like it's just a kind of an art form that they just don't quite know how to access? How do students typically first respond to poetry? I never felt any resistance to poetry. They, they ex expressed an openness to it to me because I was the poetry lady. And um, because I was excited about it, they were excited about it. Plus, you have to choose the right poems to share with them, to get them going. Um, you have to choose things that they can relate to. I love to share a poem called My Hair by Eileen Cherry. And my hair sings praises, stands, lives hard, throws its hands up to the sky, shouts hallelujah when I let a love come through thee, love. A thousand hands of sun reaching through, making it to shine like a crown of black jewels. And, and from there, each, each student would pick some part of his or her uh, body that identified them so they could relate to the, to the, to the poem. Other poems might be uh, Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden, um, where he talked about his father, the last two lines. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? And then we would talk about parents and the the love of parents and our love for parents and each would, would share something about their family. Uh, if not a parent, then someone who loved them. And so the important thing is to share meaningful poems, poems that uh, mean something to you as a poet. I'm gonna share a poem about my father now. Great. If I'm gonna share because you asked me to share. <laughs> <laughs> my father's prayers. Every morning, my father prayed on his knees at the side of his marriage bed. He bowed his head and poured his prayers into two loose fists over his mouth. We watched in wonder as the one who could give a whipping and scold us with his tongue turned into a penitent child, obedient and intense petitioner. We lurked around his doorway like cowardly debtors observing his rich rite of passage into the working day or weekend that worked also except for Sunday when he got up dressed in his best, put on his hat and went calling on relatives, our Aunt Tumpy who had a piano he could make it talk, the keys jangling an entrance to paradise, blue fire in his fingers. He threw his head back and let his fingers go with his relaxed 
ecstatic body. And with each sound, he threw away or burned away everything that hurt a man or brought him to his knees. Yeah, when I read that, I was totally transfixed by that poem. I came across that in your collection and thought that was extraordinary. I found powerful. that men like that poem better than women. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. interesting. Well, let's talk about another, I mean, not to compare, but another hugely important force in your life, which is Gwendolyn Brooks. You've mentioned her. I mean, you met her first kind of from a distance. Tell us, and then you've later, uh, you know, studied her, wrote a book about her. Tell us about who she was, um, how you knew her, and why she's such a powerful and important force in American literature. I just got something from Brooks Permissions, the... Uh, which is in charge of preserving Gwendolyn Brooks' legacy. And right now they're doing something called Graphic Gwendolyn, which is comic books of her poems. And when they described this, these comic books, they said, Illinois Poet Laureate Gwendolyn Brooks. And I thought, Poet Laureate from 1968 to 2000, but that didn't feel right. It was like, Gwendolyn Brooks will always be Illinois Poet Laureate. <laughs> she is the model of the Poet Laureate. She made such an impress on the Poet Laureate that she defines the role her generosity of her time. I wrote a book about her, so I, I know how, how she uh, gave to others. Even when she was doing her readings, she would linger long after she had finished reading and sign people's books and talk to each person individually and give them encouragement. And uh, she would sign for an hour or two after she had finished reading. And that kind of generosity, she was generous with her, with her, with her money, helping young writers and giving uh, personally funding a contest for young young poets in Illinois. She, as an artist, as a poet, she is without compare. She distinguished herself in her use of language, in transforming language, in making every word new in transforming it. Her observation of humanity, particularly African-Americans, or she would say Blacks, that's the name of her book, Black. The accuracy and the fidelity to the Black experience is without compare. She loved us. One thing George Kent, a critic from the University of Chicago said was that you have to go down deep into the specific in order to discover the universal. Gwendolyn Brooks went down deep into the specific Black experience and arrived at the universal without asking to, without saying, oh, I want to be universal, and then blanking out her experience. She was unabashedly Black and loved Black people, and by that ex extension, loved all humanity. 
Well, you wrote a, a couple sentences. I mean, you wrote a book about her, but a, a, a couple sentences really jumped out at me. You say, I, I, you write, I knew her, I studied her work and modeled my words after her words, the way she handled language so intensely and the way she searched for the perfect word. I wanted to do that with my poems. Talk about that particular aspect of her writing. She used language the way Billie Holiday sang. And that is what I modeled my work after too. Every note meant something. Every word meant something. She turned uh, salve, salvage in the spin, endorse the splendor splashes. And you can not only feel that rolling around in your mouth, but you can see it and experience the language. Every word means something and together they mean something else. Well, let's talk about your writing career because the thing that's so striking, I mean, your poetry is amazing, but I've been struck by just the various genres you've been able to, to work in. I mean, you've, uh, you're a poet, of course, we'll talk about that. You're a playwright. You, you wrote an amazing novel that I think you worked on for 40 years and ended up being, you know, a thousand uh, pages, which they had to break into two books. And I was wondering, as I've read some of your work, like when you're processing the world, if you're driving down Michigan Avenue or, you know, Lakeshore Drive and you see, you know, the world unfolding, when you come back to write about it, do you consciously say, okay, you know, the impressions I have would be a great poem or they'd be, you know, the, the stuff of a play or a chapter in a book? I mean, how do you... How do you decide which genre you want to write in? Or does it just sort of flow out of you? For one thing, I can't drive, so I can just take out my purse and saw any old piece of paper and just start writing and taking notes. Uh, but I can hear it. I can hear what, what it's going to be, if it's a poem or a piece of a play or a novel. Um, Right now, I had an image of pigeons that I've been working on that runs throughout my novels. And I just ran across something about pigeons. And I, I, I think I have to fit it into the third novel, you know? Yeah, because the, the pigeons are like... Uh, a part of a symbol through, that run throughout the the books. Um, so I, I, I want, so I know that I'm adding that to the third novel. Now, I heard a voice in my head, a character telling another character something out of African-American folklore. I can't tell you what it is. And I said, this is not a poem. This is, again, a novel. This is, again, the novel, again. Uh, now, I was, I was recently thinking something about uh, a a, a black leader who had been assassinated. And it was a new idea that had never occurred to me. And um, I felt like because I saw this image, it was an image. I said, this is a poem. This, this will be a poem. And I, I see it, yeah. So poems, I think very often I begin with an image or a crisp line that has an end. And the novel more often, if it's not a recurring image that I've worked with before, then it might be a, a line of, a, of a, a character speaking. The same is true of a play, a, a line of a character speaking. Now, did you, is your, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna tell you about my, my play, Comforts too. 
that was published in 2019, that was from uh, a news story, a story of a missing child that I had seen what had happened to this child so disturbed me that I said, I, I want to write a play about that. And that's how that was born. Now, another play came out of a series of poems that I wrote over three years. I wrote the, the plays for Shango, the poems over three years. And then I decided, I showed them to a producer and he said that I, that I needed to what in effect I needed to ground it in a, in a story. So I, I tried it one way and that didn't work. So I developed a story to ground it in. Yes. So is your house packed with notebooks where you're just, I mean, and do you write every day something uh, or how do you, uh, how do you approach the, the writing uh, challenge? I used to write every day. Now I, I can't. No, I don't. I just, my, as my sister, what did my sister say? My sister Margaret told me one time, I can't write my mind. It's too cluttered. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 as soon as I, I find the, the four ambassadors for the poet laureateship and finish selecting all the poems that they will use to stir things up with the young people and people in rehab and, and community centers, then I'll, I'll write. Then I can go back and I'll have more time for me. As for now, I cheat and, and scribble notes here and there. Well, well, let's talk about your role as, as Poet Laureate. You were named in, I think it was November, last November. And in a couple of the interviews I, I read, like I think it was in the Chicago Sun-Times, you say, I want people to be excited about poetry. I want to awaken the poets and the young people, especially, so they'll be lifelong readers of poets and potentially poets themselves. And I also saw another interview where you said you also want to kind of capture the experience of seniors. You think that's a part of life that maybe hasn't been captured as well. So tell us what you want to, what, what you want to do and be as, as Illinois Poet Laureate. I have several programs in my, I have three contests. Now already, Illinois Humanities and um, where I am, which hosts me, I'm hosted, the Poet Laureate is hosted by Illinois Humanities. Illinois Humanities uh, is doing the Youth Poet Laureate contest that they've been doing for several years now as an extension of Gwendolyn Brooks Poet Laureate contest. Um, but I'll be starting um, a contest for college students, a contest for high school students who want to study poetry in college, and a contest for senior citizens. And each of these contests have been underwritten by generous donors. Uh, I know them. <laughs> very kind members of close close members that I know and uh, those are the that's the contest component um, oh each of those contests is for a thousand dollars so yeah so they're good prizes yeah yeah and the other program that the Poet Laureate is working on is having four ambassadors who will go to schools, community centers, rehab centers, uh, uh, senior citizen centers, 
and prisons and do short-term residencies of two to five days and uh, do communal poems or competitions, poetry slams, whatever gets the people stirred up and fired up. And uh, we'll, we will create us uh, a book from those from the notable poems that that come out of the, come out of that so those are the two things that I'll be doing now I must say that I think that my job has gotten a, a boost from Amanda Gorman I must <laughs> I must say that I think that she's uh, brought a more attention to poetry yeah well, I saw her in an interview. It was interesting. She was talking about poetry and she, she was talking about performing poetry. And I've, I was interested by that term because I sometimes think of poetry in, in the context of reciting a poem. What is the difference between performing and reciting poetry? Uh, in reciting, you just say it. In performing, you actually, uh, you, more, you more act it out. Yeah. Um, Oh, and the, the thing about Amanda Gorman is we have to know she's a spoken word poet. So there is a difference between it. So that's where that component of performing comes into spoken word poets perform. Uh, so far, I only have one ambassador. And the wonderful thing about Janetta Anderson is that she is a spoken word poet and a literary poet. So she had a, a career as authentic, a spoken word poet. That was her name, authentic. And she went and got an MFA and studied as a literary poet. So she does both. And, I, and so she's a jewel. Uh, amazing. Well, I wonder if you maybe could do for us who are maybe not as schooled in poetry, the difference between a spoken word and a literary. I mean, is one just more literary uh, structured to be read and the other spoken as it as the word implies? Or what is the difference between these two types of poetry? Spoken words are to be read. And you can you can when you read when you read them. They're, they are to be read aloud um, and presented. And literary are very often just meant to be read to yourself and not necessarily read aloud. Though I think that all poetry benefits from being said aloud, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about poetry. Do you find that um, when, you, when you teach poetry to students, um, you know, what is the way to, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you've mentioned about having, you know, poems that they can, that speaks to them and can stimulate them. Do students, um, I mean, like, for example, do you find it's important to, to encourage them to memorize poetry? Is that discipline, you know, important to developing as a poet, or is that just a kind of a, something that's peripheral to the, uh, to the, to the discipline? <laughs> Some poems ask themselves to be memorized. What was funny, one, one, uh, one, uh, one morning I was lying in bed and all of a sudden I, I thought of Robert Frost stopping by woods on a snowy day and I remember thinking, for I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. And I jumped out of bed and got up and cleaned my room. <laughs> I was urged onward by the force of that poem. And I, I do think that there is uh, a benefit to memorizing poems. In, in, in terms of poetry, I mean, 
the the aesthetic value, but also I wonder if you could talk about just how you think poetry is, you know, valuable in society. And I, I actually came across a speech that John F. Kennedy gave. He was still a senator. He was giving a commencement speech at Harvard in 1956. And he said, if more politicians knew poetry and more poets knew about politics, I'm convinced the world would be a little better place in which to live on this commencement day. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do, absolutely. I was just looking at a quote from Gwendolyn Brooks where she said, poetry helps people form opinions and opinions uh, lead people to action. Yeah, that's something like the quote that she said, yeah. Well, maybe let's touch on Gwendolyn Brooks again. Did you, how, how well did you happen to know her? Um, and in kind of what specific ways did she inspire? I mean, I know you've talked about just the, the kind of the intense focus on language and, and the importance of making every word speak. But talk about just sort of what it was like to see her, you know, kind of up close. Uh, what kind of lifelong impact did she have on you? She had an in. We were not intimates. We were... Uh, the wonderful thing, the most amazing thing happened after I finished writing the biography of her, I had a dream that she uh, opened her arms to me and gave me the warmest talk. It was amazing. We, we weren't in the past huggers like that, but uh, she was always gracious and friendly to me, uh, being signing my books with affection and love, you know, and things like that, you know. But she, of course, um, her daughter Nora and I are good friends. So she, that was like, like Nora. I, I didn't even think of her as Gwendolyn Brooks. As Gwendolyn Brooks, I for the longest time she was Nora's mama to me, you know. So <laughs> that's how we started out. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, you know continuing in terms of the poet laureate of Illinois. I know you've you've lived in this state most of your life. Uh, you've traveled around. You've taught. Um, you know, if you're sitting on a, you know, back in the day when we were traveling on planes and you were sitting next to someone from California and they said, so what is Illinois like? You know, what is, what is distinct about the state of Illinois? What, what, how would you respond? I'm going to read you a poem that will tell you what I think about Illinois, what Illinois is like. <laughs> now, Gwendolyn Brooks was the one who suggested that our suggested me for writing this poem. This state of grace commissioned in honor of the Governor's Awards, Illinois Arts Council, its 30th year. With your big shoulders and flat chest or splendid breasts that nurture man and woman, you are white and black and brown and yellow and red dreams your long arm stretching a highway from here to there, the other stretching angled into sky, from Great Lake to Indian mounds, you whistling prairie and sirening street. You require a choir to sing all your children to sleep and wake them in the morning with joys coming with your battered, your bunched, your squandered on the 10 o'clock news or not, your broken, your dispossessed, your robbed at gunpoint, your raped, your harassed, your nerves taxed, all your broken-hearted gamblers and glad-hearted believers, you police and politicals and saints, you muggers and rapists, you murderers with murdered eyes, all of you, school children and teachers and anointed, you require a choir of sculptors, painters,
to mold you in clay with feet of clay and head of cloud to color you in your human hues, to dream your dreams and wake you in the morning with joys coming. You caterpillars and strikers, you social butterflies, you scabs and pullman porters, you sowers and tillers and gatherers who reap what others sow for you, you calloused hands and calloused hearts, you broken-hearted and holy believers, you colored blue and white, you require a choir, an army of filmers to capture you in the act of making an honest living. Fat, flat leaf, catalpa tree, tree of having stinking down on us, blackberry bushes and muscadine, cornfields and seas of soybeans. We fall not far from you, fruit of the earth, plenitude and comfort and security, heartland and Lincoln land. We hold these truths like seeds to sprout out the eyes of children. You require a choir to voice these truths self-evident, this grace too long disgraced, needful of itself, singing, dancing on the land of sweeping sweet wheat to call the morning and joys coming. Train whistles bursting the night, anointing our traveling, snaking the fields and whipcording the earth, taking us back and forth in time, an underground railroad of silent footsteps moving toward a North Star, way stations of strangers believing in the evidence of humankind at liberty to say, I am human, I am free, Trees touch leaves like kin and gather us in the secrets of each passage, rags on its back, joy come running in the morning. Common people, we require a choir and art lifting out from our hearts, honey and hate to daylight, shining what we must keep and let spill, running slowly like a big river of grace, a joy, a plenitude pulsing and laying waste in light what we must be no more to ourselves or each other. Acquire all that glistens and squints and questions in between the magnitude and the horror and ennui. Grace be a river and a way station, a way of being, high whistle in the fields, all we imagine, all we acquired, all we issue forth. We require a choir to sing the clay paints piano a chorus of voices, flute, saxophone, pen and ink and costume, raw talent and refined, a choir of whips and flower stalks. In the dim hour, in the den, we require a choir to quiet what lurks and leeches our hearts to stone. We will have no choir masters before us who ask, for silence alone. We require a choir, a song that remembers beneath the surface in eddies and streams, alleys and boulevards, miseries and anguishes and mercies where no voice is forgotten, no heartbeat lost to a history cheated of yearning and challenge, baby cry and the screams of mothers and fathers blinded by the day's wages. We cannot give up on choirs. Who would forgive us? Not the birds wandering in well-being from tree to shining tree. Not the land lonely to be joined in witness to wonder and loveliness and might. Not history 
open before us like the book of waters, the Mississippi River of memory, not ourselves loosed of body, victorious, who sings form to feeling an intricate mind, be exact as the time of day, ecstatic as perennials who come without being asked, out of the earth, elaborate landscape of flesh, we will come a running joy, singing, oh people, here is the choir, let us be the song. Well, as you were reciting that, I was thinking that at SIU, we have a, a course, a history of Illinois course, and that probably should be the first reading to just get a sense of the sweep and the, uh, the scope and the, the very complex aspect of Illinois. That's amazing. Professor, let's, I guess the final question I'd like to ask you is, is the, you know, obviously there's been a great deal talked about racial justice in the last year in the United States. And I wonder what you think the role of poems and poetry is in both kind of sharpening the issues and also maybe pointing towards some solutions or at least improvements in our country. Poetry's role is to, to keep us alive, to keep us talking to ourselves from the heart and talking to our own selves, to our own hearts, finding ourselves and also talking to each other from the heart. Uh, I think that's the best way to see it, is to clarify, to, to clarify through the muck. Now that poem helps me unclutter my mind. <laughs> 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 no, that's that's amazing. Well, we will keep in touch and we will keep reading uh, your wonderful poetry and following your work and look forward to having you visit us in person someday in the very near future, we hope. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cass is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cass wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.